It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Elon Musk was right. How illegal immigration changes the House of Representatives, changes the Electoral College, and changes who could be President of the United States. And it just might be the man who's now lied at least two dozen times, and again recently over whether or not he was asked about his son dying, Joe Biden. Two, the Kansas City parade shooting. What it wasn't, a gun problem. What it is, a crime problem what it should be, a story of heroes. And three, Brady versus Mahomes. And as Tony Robbins taught us, it's easier to guide an elephant with emotion than with reason. It's the Will Kane Show, streaming live at foxnews.com and on the Fox News YouTube channel, live every day at noon Eastern, and always on demand at The Will Kane Show on YouTube. If you'll hit subscribe, you can get this show whenever you like, in its entirety or in its pieces. Exclusive interviews with the likes of Tony Robbins, or a special episode of Will and Pete with my Fox & Friends co-host, Pete Hegseth. And it's always available in its entirety on demand should you be sitting on a rowing machine and working out or driving in your car or sitting in your cubicle pretending to work on podcast at Apple, Spotify, or at Fox News Podcast. Go hit subscribe. So it shows up like the video version on YouTube right there in your stream. The news often presents you with negativity and you can focus on negativity. Negativity is sometimes an integral part of diagnosis. You don't want your doctor to walk in and go, you know, it's all going to be all right. Let's just not look at the x-ray. But at the same time, you want your doctor to offer you a solution. You want an accurate diagnosis, and then you want to move forward with how you can create positivity. Not always touchy-feely, hey, I feel good, affirmations, Stuart Smalley, I'm good enough, I'm strong enough. You want actually a way to grab the handrail of sanity. You want control over your life, and that, in my mind, is positivity. That is... Horrible negative news out of Kansas City yesterday of a shooting at a parade to celebrate the Kansas City Chiefs offers us a handrail of sanity. We will negatively diagnose exactly the problem that presents itself with violence in America, specifically acutely violence in American inner cities. But we'll grab the handrail of sanity and see that heroes, literal heroes, not those that engineer last minute come from behind drives that are symbolic of heroism in football, but actual real-life heroes act on an instinct in a moment to tackle a shooter, as happened in Kansas City. We'll get to all of that today here on the Will Kane Show, but let us start this Thursday edition of the show with our lunch break panel. Let us start with story number one. She is a attorney and a legal analyst you can find on X at Lexi the Lawyer, and he is the president and chief community organizer of Free the People and the host of Kibbe on, Kibbe on Liberty. On X, he is Matt Kibbe. It's Matt Kibbe and Lexi Rigdon join us here today on The Will Kane Show. Lexi, great to see you again. It's been like, I don't know, you know, two weeks. Oh. Matt, what's it been, man? It's been like, has it been a decade I think it, I think it may well have been a decade since we've hung out together. So we should probably do this more often. Let's do this more often. I'm I'm heartened. I'm excited that you haven't let go of your hipster persona. It's you know it's cleaned up. It's tightened. I see the beard is tight on the face and the glasses are taking a professorial look, but it's still the same, Matt Kibbe. Well, I just wanted to bring bring my best game for you. So. So you trimmed the neckline, the top That's of the right. beard, the cheekbone, and brought it down to about a four guard, I see, on the face. I'm glad to have Matt Kibbe back, and I'm glad to have Lexi Rigdon as well. I want to start, if we can, with perhaps the two-dozenth entry in the canon that is the 
catalog of lies from Joe Biden. This unfolded last week after the report by the special prosecutor into the mishandling of classified documents into the president of the United States. It emerged that Robert Hur had uncovered some memory lapses of Joe Biden. And one of those seemed to be pretty damning in that it pointed to one of the most emotional moments in Joe Biden's life, the loss of his son, Bo. Now, in response to this revelation, he couldn't remember the date of the death of his son, Bo. Biden took to a podium that night in a a impromptu press conference, which is highly irregular for Biden. In fact, when I was around some parents on the sideline of a soccer game, it was surmised, are we going to war or is he stepping down? Because the idea that he's going to give a quick special press conference was so rare. But here's what he had to say about this line of questioning about his son, Bo, at that press conference. I know there's some attention paid to some language in the report about my recollection of events. There's even reference that I don't remember when my son died. How in the hell dare he raise that? Frankly, when I was asked the question, I thought to myself, it wasn't any of their damn business. It is none of their damn business when the question was raised. Of course, the mainstream media, Lexi and Matt, ran with that. The New York Times just accepted that the special prosecutor, that Robert Hur raised the date of Bo Biden's death. But now we have... New reporting from NBC News that it's Joe Biden that actually brought this up in the deposition. Joe Biden apparently said when asked about certain events during certain years, the president um, tried to figure out, he tried to recall the period by discussing what else was happening in his life. And it was at that point in the interview that he appeared confused about when Bo Biden died, the source said. Biden got the date, May 30th, correct, but not the year. So, Matt, he was trying to situate things in his memory, and he brings up his son's death. And then a few hours later, when this is revealed, he grandstands that they were using his son's death. How dare they to make political points? You know, it's it's in some ways it's a classic uh, Biden strategy. He's brought up his son's death uh, for for many years as a way to garner sympathy, as a way to change the subject. And he's certainly not the only politician to do that. But when you combine that strategy with a weekend at Bernie's kind of situation, I think his handlers are taking tremendous risks putting him out there because he clearly started with the one line talking point, but then things went awry as they always do. So, so yeah, we could be offended that he's, that he sort of uh, uh, uses his son's death for political gain, but he's always done that and he's not the only one to do that, but he's just not capable of pulling it off anymore. You're, you're, you're right that he, you know, this isn't new for him, Matt. I just, I see this um, article up at the Washington Examiner, uh, Lexi, it's got, it's got dozens of lies from Joe Biden. Now, I think Matt makes a, a point that we don't need to wave our hand at. This is par for the course for politicians. But Biden's are, un- I, w- I think they're somewhat unique in that they are lies about his biography. They're lies about who he is. He's lied about whether or not he was shot at in Iraq. He has lied about whether or not he told Slobodan Milosevic that he was a war criminal to his face. And that night, he went on the podium and he lied and lied and lied, including saying that the results of the investigation by the special prosecutor was that he was exonerated from willfully mishandling classified documents. I'm not surprised because also the media picks up his sound bites and runs with it. Obviously not not this show and not a lot of the shows on Fox, which are more fair and balanced than other networks, but they'll run with it and say, well, he said he was exonerated, so what do we even need to talk about here? But ultimately, the emperor has no clothes. He has a cognitive issue, and everybody is ignoring it. I mean, not everybody, but a lot of people are ignoring it. And the stuff that I've seen on other networks, uh, people saying, well, that guy, her, he's not a neurologist. Come on, my nine-year-old son could watch that and say, something's off with this guy. He just doesn't seem all there. In fact, when they were shouting questions at him, which is basically... You're the president. People are to be able to shout questions at you. Uh, he looked terrified. He literally looked scared. It was embarrassing to watch. And I still think he could weasel out of the the Bo Biden thing in saying that, you know, if, if a transcript is released, you know, I did bring it up, but it was none of their business. And it wasn't 
it shouldn't have been in the report. I mean, I could see him weaseling out of that. And given the rubber stamp that the media has done with, with, oh, he can ride a bike. It's no big deal. Oh, he's fine. Oh, everybody forgets certain dates. That'll probably fly with a lot of people. But this is really, honestly, it's really frightening. And I, I said this before um, on Fox. I think that this will go down as one of the biggest political cover-ups of all time, because this is not somebody at the tail end of their presidency. This isn't like you know, he's in his second term and he's a lame duck and he's having cognition issues. This is somebody who is running for re-election again and trying to sell us this narrative that there's not something wrong with him when we can clearly see there's something wrong with him and not remembering the, the um, when his son died. Frankly, I think that that was even the, the year that might even be less egregious than the things that he said recently about dead leaders being alive, not knowing when he was vice president, which, by the way, he didn't deny so this whole thing is is honestly a disgrace. So the bl- biggest political cover up of all time, the mental competency of Joe Biden. Um, Matt, I want to go. Listen, you know, there is, of course, the deeper underlying issue about Biden's mental capacity, that all of this is illustrative of his inability to hit on all cylinders. You know, interesting. I had Tony Robbins on this show earlier this week, and he said um, we're awash in information, but information without emotion is, is rarely retained. You would think this would be a moment of high emotion for Joe Biden that would make it easier for him to retain when his son died. And if he can't with something that emotional, he's even more compromised. But, you know, so on one level, there's three levels to this. the, The illustration of his mental incapacity. Second level. And actually somewhat in tension with that is it's another illustration of his long history of fabrication. I mean, he had to pull out of a presidential race in 1988 from plagiarizing. And plagiarizing has been part of his resume dating back, I believe, to college. Like, he's been busted for plagiarizing, I think it's three or four times throughout his career. But then maybe the most important thing, and I think you alluded to this, Matt, the third level is he gets away with it because he has cover. Like, um... So Jill Biden, of course, said, oh, they're trying to score political points. Eric Holder, of course, said, how dare you bring this up? But the real problem isn't the political hacks around him. It's the supposed media that, look, the bubble is burst on whether or not they're objective. But I still think they control the narrative for a great amount of what we'll call normies out there, casual observers of politics. And if they just take it at face value... Oh, he was exonerated. Oh, how dare you bring up Bo Biden? He's got the cover he needs to get away with this career of lying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like clearly the, the media is not only complicit, and you bring up those old stories that were called out by by what used to be mainstream media. I don't think we can call it that anymore because there's, there's a clear collusion between the people that want to at least prop up Joe Biden until they get to the convention so that the party bosses can can choose his successor without all of that messy thing we call democracy. Um, but the but the media is fully owned and controlled by these same interests. And it's it's kind of difficult to figure out where the government interests that want Joe Biden to get reelected um, start and and where the, the corporate media um, functions today. They're they're fully intertwined and they will not hold him accountable I, th- I think ultimately that is a problem for the Democratic Party unless they fix this at convention, because you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see that Joe Biden cannot string a sentence together. And unlike the last election where he hid in his basement because of lockdowns, he's not going to be able to do that this time. So they're going to have to fix this problem one way or another. Lexi? I agree. But, you know, what's scary to me is that there are Democrats out there and some of whom I'm because I, I, you know, the coexist bumpers. I actually coexist. If you're a Democrat, I'll be friends with you. Like I uh, those the people that have those bumper stickers are usually the most intolerant. But, you know, I have a lot of Democrat friends and Democrat family members. And I'll say, like, why can't we objectively say this is an issue? It doesn't have anything to do with politics. I mean, if Trump were getting up there and confusing dead leaders with living leaders and confusing Mexico with Egypt, everybody would be saying something about it. And the people that support him are just so entrenched in their narrative that he's better than what the Republicans have. And, you know, he's fine. It's not that bad. I mean, there's no objectivity left in these conversations with people that really still support him. And it's it's really disheartening. I think that there's a lack of objectivity in general with people when it comes to politics. 
Lexi, as a follow-up, among those Democrat friends, and I know, Matt, you know, you're a libertarian and, and you have friends across the political aisle as well, but Lexi, among those Democrat friends, I'm just curious, does any of what we're talking about break through? Does any of what we're talking about, like, for example, the revelation this week or the confirmation this week that the CIA planted some of the reverse spying on Donald Trump that led to an FBI investigation, or that, in fact, Joe Biden did lie on these numerous occasions over that press conference last week. Does any of it break through to their consciousness? Does it, can it penetrate the zeitgeist, or does it just not matter? Is it washed away? Is it in one ear and out the other because, hey, the alternative is Donald Trump? Well, that's the thing. I mean, I have I have a friend, and it's always the most outspoken one. So I have a friend who I post all of my stuff on this is a shameless plug for me, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. And I had a friend when I called this the big, biggest, one of the biggest political cover-ups of all time, I had a friend, a very liberal friend reach out and say, well, you know what, this isn't great, but a bigger political co cover-up is Trump trying, trying to overthrow the election. I'm like, okay, I, 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 that has literally nothing to do with this. We are talking about the sitting president. I don't care if, if Trump dropped out tomorrow and it was a different person, like this has nothing to do with Donald Trump. This has everything to do with the fact that we look like idiots across the world. And we literally look like we have somebody, well, we do have somebody's grandfather running the country, but there's a big difference between somebody like Joe Biden, who's 81, and like Alan Dershowitz. I don't always agree with Alan Dershowitz, but he's 85 and he's as sharp as a tack. So, you know, the 81 is not necessarily, I don't actually think that the fact that somebody is 81 means they can't be president, but this 81 year old should not be president. And the Democrats should be scared come November because that's also just not a good look. But for a lot of Democrats, you turn on the TV, you turn on channels, I won't name them. They don't care because anything to them is better than Trump. Matt, I want to put that same thing to you. Like, um, you brought up nobody really thinks of it as the mainstream media anymore, but it still does control a lot of thought process. And I think it probably even controls a lot of thought process among self-described independents. So do you think it's breaking through or, or it just doesn't resonate? Well, you know, you just had Matt Taibbi on, and I think there's this this beautiful counter-revolution happening, particularly when you see that the that the government is dictating the terms of the of the public conversation on social media, thanks to the Twitter files. And and again, sort of obvious at this point that they're singing from the same song sheet. So you have a lot of uh, red-pilled uh, former uh, progressive liberals, however they would identify themselves, realizing that they're not going to get truth from this media machine, that it's just a mouthpiece. It's almost like a Pravda for for the American government, but they're going to go elsewhere. And, and, you know, this show, a thousand others like it. Uh, Joe Rogan is is orders of magnitude bigger than the entire mainstream uh, network news combined. I think the revolution is actually happening. And I think that people are going to get their information from other sources and they can also see it with their own eyes when it comes back, you know, come back to this question of whether or not Joe Biden is is mentally competent. Um, you know, all of the talking points in the world don't change the fact of what people see with their own eyes. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. And bringing up those individuals, by the way, you can go subscribe to The Will Cain Show. You'll get that interview with Matt Taibbi, um, where he talks about all the, the links to which the Democratic Party and its, and its figures are going to stop, not just Donald Trump, but no labels and Dean Phillips and ensure that Joe Biden is president. All right, let's talk about the media in a different capacity. You know, um, Matt brings up X and the conversations that take place on X. And I think X is integral, Matt. Um, but I also, and I think that some of these voices on X um, are integral, but at times I think, okay, we're hitting terminal velocity. Okay, the pendulum's swinging too far. Now I'm going to talk about it when it comes to food. I am personally a big believer that exploration and investigation of our food supply over the last half a century is something that must be done to find out you know, what it could be contributing to cancer rates or any of our other health problems, certainly obesity. But you've got sort of like two ends of this polar spectrum playing out on X. On one end, you've got, uh, for example, the, the, the lead of uh, TED Talks, backed by sort of the food revolution of the World Economic Forum, talking about cloned meat or fake meat. The, the lead of TED said he just ate, I think it was cloned chicken. Um, on the other end, you've got influencers like a guy by the name of Solbra, 
uh, I, I think I think would describe himself as on the right, saying, you know, I've moved to fully raw, meaning like eating beef raw, oh. which. Look, man, I don't like to be out alphaed, uh, which I am easily out alphaed, but I'm not going to be eating my beef raw. I mean, yeah. I happen to think man's, you know, discovery of fire and killing bacteria and food was a great leap forward for humanity, Matt. Well, I, so I like um, I like the competition and I would rather hear from dozens of sources. I'll judge their credibility on my own accord, but I love the fact that the old FDA food triangle that was very much a collusion of a government agency and a lot of uh, corporate interests that wanted to convince us that sugar was okay, we just had to work out more. I like the fact that that paradigm has been exploded by these competing voices. And I'm, I, I lean in the, the keto camp and, and I cook my steak extremely rare. So maybe I'm out alpha-ing you right now, but I'm mostly just from... <laughs> Western Pennsylvania, where that is the only appropriate way to cook a steak. But um, I think that the the old one-size-fits-all government narrative about what a proper diet was, which was 100% wrong, has only been exposed because you have all of these extreme perspectives all the way across the spectrum. And it's not just X, it's otherwhere. But, you know, post-Elon, X is probably the one place where you won't be censored for suggesting that the government's lying to you about what a healthy diet is. Okay, I totally love that answer, and I'm with you. I co-sign everything you have to say about that. Here's a question, though. I'll give it to you, Lexi. Like, I I do wonder, and somebody brought this up, I think, in the New York special election, you know, the seat that was taken from George Soros, and then it ended up going to a Democrat. Like, the right embracing increasingly marginal points of view. Now, I'm not even going to pass judgment on right or wrong on all these things, because hell if I know. But like, you know, um, Taylor Swift is a CIA agent or an asset designed to do I don't know what. But like the, the increasing amount, and I, I see it all, you know, and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Let me think about that. Uh, but like the more that the right kind of makes the average person go, come on, the worse it is for the counter group think of the left. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the food stuff, I can't even watch that on Netflix and all, all of the places that they have, like your the truth about your food, because it's terrifying, to be honest. We don't know what's in our food. Um, I am a beta or even less. I'm not an alpha with steak. I'm a beta or even less. I don't know the Greek alphabet, but I'm lower than that. I mean, I will go, I have no shame going to a restaurant and getting a, a filet butterfly. Okay. Oh if it's, if it, well, I know, listen, I can't, <laughs> I can't with, forget bloody. I don't even like it when steak is pink. Like I just can't do it. I can't do it. It's disgusting to me. You chew so, on that bite. You chew on that bite for a good 15 minutes. Even my cat is offended at this point. <laughs> I love seeing the cat, by the way. It's really cute. No, people do not understand. See, I love the act of eating. Like, I love eating. Um, but I don't, I'm not a foodie. So if you did, if there were some, you know, cloned meat, raw meat, that kind of thing, it's 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 not going to happen here. It's not going to happen. I'll stick with, like, the Pop-Tarts. And Listen, I'm not saying I'm doing the right thing here. But um, <laughs> that's kind of where I fall on food. Well, I'm... By the way, I'm the same. I'm an eat to live guy, not a live to eat. Like I need fuel. That's what I do yeah. with food. I don't. I'm not like I can't wait to go. I, I mean, I don't want clone meat. The whole idea sounds gross. But um, I'm probably not going to be the frontline warrior on the food revolution because I just am not that discerning. Mm -hmm. Right. Same. I, yeah. I, I, I'm uh, Matt, do you think there's any risk? What I what I put to Lexi? Do you think there's any risk of like you know? Um, the thing is, I believe in the culture war. I truly do, because I think politics and everything is downstream from culture, as was famously said by Andrew Breitbart. But I do wonder if there's a level of exhaustion or extremity in the culture war that actually ends up losing the culture war. Yeah, and I know you've talked about this before, and I, I very much am anti-quickbait, anti-rage all the time that sort of pushes us back into our tribal corners. But But I think there's an upside to that stuff too. And, and, you know, at Free the People, our whole job is, is to create sort of enlightening, emotionally compelling narratives that break that cycle of just being angry at the other guys. But at the same time, I can look at the upside 
of, of democratization and decentralization of social media, despite the government manipulation, and see that we're having a more honest conversation, including the wild conspiracy theories that are obviously ridiculous. We're going to also discover some so-called conspiracy theories, like maybe maybe uh, the coronavirus leaked from a lab um, that are actually true. And if it wasn't for this this Wild West conversation that we're now more able to have, we would never, ever have known that, that we would have listened again and again to the, the new Walter Cronkite on the lab leak question. That's the way it is. And we'd have no means to question that authority. And now we can. And I have a little bit of faith in the in the wisdom of the crowd and our ability to sort this stuff out. But, you know, the last thing we want to do, I call out the, the weird conversations, call out the conspiracy theories, but we sure as hell don't need Elizabeth Warren telling us that we're not allowed to have that conversation. That's a great point from Matt Kibbe. I want to move to our third story here, which is this headline at foxnews.com is that illegal immigrants, which according to, I believe, um, organizations connected to the census, so the official count, but not the real count of illegal immigrants, is somewhere in the range of 17 million right now. And the impact of 17 million illegal immigrants on our elections at the House level and then for president is, is, if not substantial, differential. It can change an election. And here's how. Elon Musk got a lot of pushback um, from mainstream media because he tweeted out things like, most people in America don't know that the census is based on simple headcount of people, including illegals, not just citizens. This shifts political power and money to states and congressional districts with the highest number of illegals. That's what Elon Musk tweeted out. It was about a week ago. And in response to that, most of the media um, uh, did what they do and ran some kind of politifact check on Elon Musk and said this is false. But it's not false. And here's how it works. The census does count everybody. It's door to door, not asking who is a citizen. The census then drives um, congressional seats. It's something like 760 or 700. Yeah, 760,000 people per congressional seat. So now you've counted illegal immigrants in some districts and awarded a congressional seat. And then, of course, the next step in that domino is that congressional seats dictate electoral college. And electoral college decides who is the president. So whether or not, and Elon went on to say, you know, the pathway to citizenship will eventually afford the right to vote for illegal immigrants. Whether or not that happens it's already happening in that it is affecting, Lexi, our electoral politics. It's creating more House seats for mm-hmm. certain districts and, by extension, creating more electoral power on how we select a president. And I think that people either don't really understand that because they don't understand. I think school has failed us in a lot of ways. Um, that Kids coming out of high school, even college, they don't really understand how civics works. They're, they're busy, you know, learning about other things like pronouns and stuff like that. And they're not actually learning about this stuff. So they don't realize that the fact that illegal immigrants, immigrants mostly can't vote, almost exclusively can't vote because they can't vote in state or federal elections. They can, I think, vote in some local elections. That doesn't really matter. It's still shifting the tide. And my, my favorite story in terms of this is I was representing a criminal defendant in court who had a long history um, in court. And... Um, and uh, I was talking to him and we were doing a plea form. And I, I, there was, are you a U.S. citizen is on the form. And I was actually going to skip it because I was like, well, you know, he's here. But then I thought, nope, I can't actually assume you're a U.S. citizen. So I started a U.S. citizen. He said, yes, I am. And then he just volunteers. He says, you know, it doesn't, you don't even need to be anymore. Have you seen the border? It's a disaster. I used to be a Democrat. Now I'm a Republican. And I'm kind of sitting there and I'm like, you know, we're, we come from more different walks of life than you can imagine. But it was a really interesting conversation to have with somebody that I would have no reason to interact with outside of this context. We wouldn't know each other. And it was like, wow, you know, this is actually sinking in to people, but you wouldn't know it from looking at the media. Um, but the other point I wanted to make about this is when I, my Democrat friends who love you, sh- I love you, shout out, um, the Democrat friends that I have, when I say you can't deny how bad things are at the border. You just simply cannot deny the math. Then I had one say, well, they've arrested or detained more people under Biden than they ever did under Trump. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but I said back, I said, that's because more people are coming. 
I mean, they're, they're looking at this in, they're just looking at this in their own, through their own lens. And I really think that Democrats don't care. They know that this is going on. They know it's changing the political landscape and they assume that the people that are coming are favorable to them and they don't care. I think we would be having a different conversation if it was conservative Cubans flooding over the Texas-Mexico border. I honestly think we'd be having a different conversation. I think there would be more concern, but I think that the Democrats figure we don't really care about these people. They're here, they're not here, but they're still one of us. And I think that that's one of the reasons they don't seem to care. You know, you know Matt, the- I know you have a strong libertarian instinct, Matt, and I don't know which way you'll come at this because there is a mindset within, or at least, um, I don't know about a prevalent, but there is a certain subset of libertarian mindset that that embraces a little bit the idea of open borders. Um, at, from an economic perspective, the argument is usually made from a libertarian. So where are you on the effects of illegal immigration and as we're talking here about electoral politics? So, so when I was a Tea Party leader, I've always been a libertarian, but when I was a Tea Party leader, or conversely, when I would go on Geraldo's show, um, I would say the same thing. If you want to come to our country and follow the rules and work, we want you. And I, I feel that very strongly. And I think uh, um, I have lots of immigrant friends who are far more American in their values and the love of country than a lot of the students that I meet coming out of university today. But the biggest myth in American politics today is that the Democrats care more about immigrants than Republicans. And I think that I think what's going on at the southern border right now is a cynical anti-human attempt to essentially harvest future votes. And they now they now have all of these these means of of, of mail in balloting and, and vote harvesting that I think changes the game fundamentally. And they don't care if if families are literally dying, marching all the way from Honduras to the border because the administration has sent this signal that if you make it across, we're, we're going to we're going to take care of you. Politicians and I'll say this about both parties. They want to own and control immigrants coming to our country illegally or legally. They want to depend on their votes. And one of the ways they do that is is to ensure that they 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 sort of own their future like you're not you're not coming here to get a job that was that was that was legally acquired through a a guest worker program we're we're gonna we're gonna do it for you and thus you are gonna vote for us and your family's gonna vote for us and your 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 uh, uh, future uh, children are gonna vote for us so I, I think it I think it's disgusting and I, I would love for someone in some party to actually say, the old American ethos. If you want to come here and work and follow the rules, we're going to have a rational process by which those people can be vetted and and come over either as guest workers or as uh, actual immigrants. Um, very few people and almost zero Democrats believe that today. Yeah, I think that right there is worthy of a much deeper conversation about the effects, not just of illegal, but uh, legal immigration on the long-term implications for the United States, both the pros and the cons. And so we'll, we'll, we'll have you back, Matt, to have that conversation. I think to tie a ribbon on what you both just said, this story is illustrative. Yes, I think exactly what you said, Lexi. This is civic ignorance that people don't understand the, the immediate implications on our, on our electoral process. And, and Matt, it's also illustrative of what you talked about earlier, where we get this democratization of news that all of a sudden allows us to understand this. Otherwise, we just get politifact checks of, no, no, this isn't a problem. That's a conspiracy. I've loved this conversation. Love having you both on again. Lexi Rigdon, she's a legal analyst, um, and, and you can check her out on X at Lexi the Lawyer. And Matt, check out Matt. He's got the people. He's an organizer of Free the People, and he's the host of Kibbe on Liberty. So go check that out um, wherever you can. Matt Kibbe, Lexi Rigdon. Thank you guys so much. Thank, Thank you. you. All right. The tragic shooting at a parade celebrating the Kansas City Chiefs in Kansas City. What it isn't a gun problem. What it is a crime problem and what it should be. A story of heroes. That's next on The Will Kane Show. The Fox News Rundown. A contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. One dead, 22 injured, 
nine children at a shooting celebrating the Super Bowl victory of the Kansas City Chiefs. It's the Will Kane Show, streaming live at foxnews.com and on the Fox News YouTube channel. On demand, Will Kane Show on YouTube. Hit subscribe. And at Apple, Spotify, or at Fox News Podcast. Hit subscribe. At the tail end of a parade in Kansas City, just outside of Historic Union Station, 20 minutes roughly after the parade, celebrating the Super Bowl victory by the Kansas City Chiefs, shots rang out. The shooter or shooters ended up hitting over 22 people, including nine children. Most seemed to be non-life-threatening injuries, but it did claim the life of one mother, one radio DJ, one woman right there in Kansas City. It appears three different potential shooters or suspects were arrested, but not without the help of people right there, parade-goers, fans of the Kansas City Chiefs who subdued the shooters. Let's talk about what this story isn't, what it is, and what it should be. The immediate tenor of the conversation after one of these types of shootings immediately moves towards the inanimate object. It moves towards the gun. Pretty much the entirety of sports media, Rich Eisen, Mina Kimes, The Athletic, all characterize this as yet another entry into the catalog that is the problem, the unique problem in the world of gun violence. And then the generic but ever-present lament, we must do something, is tweeted or said. But what something is, is never mentioned, at least with not any specificity except to the extent you get lines repeated like this from President Joe Biden. We have to do something about guns. We need to institute background checks. We need to keep guns, illegal guns, out of the hands of criminals. We need to ban assault weapons. That is the general, generic, and ever-present solution offered when there is any type of tragic violence in the United States. But what is interesting about that is that none of those potential solutions, none, would do anything to address almost every one of the situations we're presented with. Look, so far, it doesn't appear, there's no evidence so far, that the shooter in the, at this parade had an assault weapon. So assault weapons would once again have very little to do with this crime. There is no evidence that these were legally bought guns, and these two dudes walked into a, these three guys potentially, or one guy, walked into a Dick's Sporting Goods and just grabbed one off the rack. There's no, there's no uh, suggestion that there was some fault in the background system or that they went to a gun show and escaped a background check in order to get their guns. There is no indication that any of these solutions would go towards addressing the actual problem, which means if you're not trying to address the problem by saying this every time there's an incident, what are you actually doing? You're pushing forward an agenda that was in place looking for the tragic circumstance to once again fly your flag. And that becomes the chorus of the song to these tragedies. What do you actually care about solving the problem if you always sing the same chorus that doesn't actually address the problem? In response to that, there's always going to be, well, this uniquely happens in the United States. How do we solve it? Says the only country on earth that can't solve this problem. But you're not offering a solution unless the thing that you're not saying is that you want to revoke the Second Amendment and have a gun confiscation program and get rid of all guns. If you want to go the way of Australia, if you want to go the way of Europe, but you don't say that, and if you want to say that, offer that up as your solution because it's sitting right there underneath the chorus of your hymn, and then we can have that conversation. But that conversation will almost inevitably result in a loss, a loss of public opinion and a loss when it comes to the ballot box because... America is not Holland. America is not the UK. And America is not Australia. Functionally, you're going to have to amend the Constitution, which has huge hurdles. What is it? Two-thirds of the United States Congress, three-quarters of the state's ratification. You're going to have to convince an overwhelming majority of Americans to give up the second right enshrined in the Constitution. Well, more, you have to culturally convince Americans that 
their freedom of choice is the problem. Now, that's been clear that that's the, what you're ready to present to America, whether or not it comes to medical choices, whether or not it comes to free speech, and whether or not it comes to guns, you're ready to say that Americans should not have the freedom of choice. But that is not, I think, the mindset of the vast majority of Americans. We understand that these rights and these freedoms come with certain cost. None of us think the cost should be the shooting of children at a school, at a mall, or at a parade. And that brings us back to your proposed solution. You don't seem to be offering something that solved that tragic reality of life either. That brings us to what the problem might actually be. How could you solve this issue? Well, first of all, they're not all the same. I think it was an article on CNN.com, or perhaps it was on The Athletic, brings up the Boston bombing, brings up the shooting in Uvalde, brings up the shooting in Kansas City. They're all vastly different. Boston, they didn't even use guns. And Uvalde, you have a crazed individual doing one of the most depraved things you can possibly imagine, which we have seen out play out in numerous occasions from Sandy Hook to Florida. And you have to ask yourself, why? What's the deeper issue there that needs to be solved? But what we see in, in Kansas City is of an entirely different nature. Now, we don't know exactly what took place in Kansas City, but we've seen the pictures. At least one of the guys was, was black. At least uh, there is one eyewitness testimony that there was a woman with one of these men that said, no, don't do that here. What are you, crazy? Whatever that it suggests, it suggests to me, uh, again, it's speculation, but that makes it sound like it's not a pre-planned attempt at a mass casualty event, but rather a spontaneous, perhaps, revenge or grudge or gang style of crime. And then you have to start addressing what actually is the issue. Very few of our shootings out there, by the way, have anything to do with quote-unquote assault weapons, which, by the way, is a term that can't be identified, can't be defined. It's sort of this feel thing. What is an assault weapon? No one knows. What I mean by that is you literally can't put a definition on it. It's impossible beyond scary-looking long black rifle. Functionally, no different than a semi-automatic handgun, which... May or may not have been the crime. It is in the vast majority of shootings, the gun involved in the crime. A handgun. Again, is your proposition to solve this problem to confiscate handguns, which are the overwhelming number of tools used when it comes to criminal shootings? And if you really want to start solving things, we have to address the problem of gang violence and crime. And we can start with Missouri. Listen to this. Uh, firearm homicide death rates by race. Let's do Missouri, since it's where this shooting took place, but also because it's number one on the chart. Annual firearm homicide deaths among men per 100,000 per year by race and state. Missouri, 2.77 homicide deaths per, by firearm per 100,000 people white. 59.42 black, a differential of 56.65 according to race. And it goes on consistently while Missouri is number one. It's followed by Michigan, Illinois, Indiana, and Pennsylvania, all with a 40-point differential. Nebraska, Louisiana, Ohio, Wisconsin, New Jersey, Oklahoma, California, Tennessee, all with a 30-plus point differential. Maryland, Arkansas, Delaware, and Alabama, all with a 20-point-plus differential. You have a crime problem. You have a gang problem in inner-city American cities that is primarily perpetrated by, and by the way, victimizing the black community in the United States. Address that, and you address the overwhelming number of gun homicides, of shootings in this country. But if you're not interested in it, if you're not interested in actually solving the problem, ignore what I just said. Dismiss it as racist. Whatever you want to do, focus back in on the inanimate object. Ignore the animate object, the human being. And you will continue to get this problem until you hang on to your utopic, unaccomplishable vision of taking away the thing that A, is a guarantor of our freedom, and B, is guaranteed in our freedoms with the Second Amendment of the Constitution. Forgive me if I feel skeptical about your desire to truly solve the problem as you continue to sing the same chorus of the same song, regardlessly how many times 
we see the evidence of the actual problem. Finally, what this story should be, a story of heroes. Paul Contreras was among the Chiefs fans who said, I didn't hesitate. That's his quote. I didn't hesitate. I just acted instinctually. Contreras charged the shooter, wrestled him to the ground, joined by other Chiefs fans, held him to the ground in what Contreras said felt like forever, but was probably about 30 seconds until the police arrived to help subdue one of these shooters. It's impossible to know who you are, what you'll do in this situation. I've seen military vets say, if I was half a foot to the left, I'd probably take cover. I'm half a foot to the right, I have my window, and I act instinctually to take down a shooter. It's impossible to know. And because of that, until you're in that situation, you don't know how you'd act or how I would act. And we have to honor those that do act. This is the story. And this needs to increasingly be the story. On New York City subways with men like Daniel Penny. On airplanes like Flight 93 and hopefully never again. And anytime we see an individual, we as good citizens can only hope that we would act like Paul Contreras, that we would be the person that does not hesitate. And then we take control of solving, at least in part, these problems if we're surrounded by heroes. All right, coming up, is it easier to um, lead an elephant by reins or to make him feel? Tony Robbins told us that information without emotion is never retained. And let's address perhaps my, at least the take that I co-signed on to this week, most unpopular take this week, that it wouldn't take seven Super Bowl victories for Mahomes to surpass Brady. That's next on The Will Cain Show. Does it take seven? Does it take eight? How many would it take Mahomes to surpass Brady? As the GOAT. It's the Will Kane Show streaming live at foxnews.com and on the Fox News YouTube channel. On demand, Will Kane Show on YouTube and Will Kane Show on Apple, Spotify, and Fox News Podcast. It was perhaps the most unpopular take of the week. It was authored by Outkicks Bobby Burak, but it was co signed by yours truly, Will Kane. And it was that while Tom Brady is the greatest of all time, to that there is no debate. He's built that resume, at least in part, on the fact that he has seven Super Bowl championships. Would it take Mahomes eight, or at least a tie of seven, to win the debate over the greatest quarterback of all time? Breck, and I believe the answer is no. Let's bring in two a days, Establishment James and Tinfoil Pat, to let's walk through this unpopular take. So two a days, that, 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 there was, I don't know that, Maybe one guy agreed with dozens who said this is the dumbest take. Yeah, there's multiple people. We'll throw some up on the screen here. Um, Mr. Miller here said Brady beat him in the AFC Championship game and then in the Super Bowl, so he'll need eight or nine for that to happen. Oh, well, well at least Mr. Miller um, brings like an argument. Like he didn't just go, no, you got to have more. He, he throws up a couple of head to head matchups. Um, and the Super Bowl, pretty compelling. Brady with the Bucks beating Mahomes with the Chiefs. But the thing is, Mahomes' resume is not complete. I mean, who knows what he'll do over the next, you know, decade? Not just in terms of winning more Super Bowls, but what will he do in the playoffs? And it, it, there, there's an element to this that is abstract, like what he does and how he wins. Do you know the most compelling stat to me in response is, I saw, I have this right here. I want to read this because I think this is fascinating. I put this on my Twitter. I don't know if you guys saw it. Big Cat from Barstool put it out, but it was put out by a guy named uh, Neil Payne. Listen to this really quickly. Since 2001, there have been 125 drives in the NFL postseason where it was at least the fourth quarter there was a minute left to play, and the team on offense trailed by seven or fewer points to start. So a game-winning drive with a touchdown is needed, right? These are your standard clutch moments in football. Do or die drive dies. Uh, do or die drives. Now, out of, out of those 125 drives of the last 22 years, 23 years, 40% of them saw the offense pull off the magic trick and win, right? Some quarterbacks are pretty good at it. Tom Brady went 5 for 11, 
46% in those situations. Mm -hmm. Drew Brees went three for six, 50%. Patrick Mahomes in those situations is seven for seven. Wow. He's perfect. He's guaranteed to pull off the game-winning drive based upon his past. And that right there, again, I'm not arguing he's, he's the GOAT. Brady is the GOAT. But he keeps compiling this resume, and my point is, it won't take seven Super Bowls to surpass Brady. Well, this next person has kind of an argument to that fact, saying, wow, plays doesn't get you GOAT status. It's winning championships, league MVPs, and breaking previously thought unbreakable records. So it kind of goes like you okay. You look at Mahomes and he looks great, but is that GOAT status? Does that get you there? Brady had three separate... Okay, so look... Brady had three separate Hall of Fame careers, if you break them out into the three different times of his career. I think Mahomes has successfully done the first third of that race. Yeah, I think that's fair. Again, we're not having a debate about whether or not Mahomes has surpassed Brady, but what it would take to surpass Brady. Two days, put that back up really quick, because I think that um, Little Army is actually making my point. Wow plays aren't aren't what I'm arguing. I mean, they're subjectively, unconsciously going to be part of it. You just can't help yourself. But like Aaron Rodgers isn't going to win because he has wow plays. But he adds not just winning championships, right? He adds league MVPs and breaking previously thought unbreakable records. And I think we all know Mahomes is safely on the path to securing that third category. And I'm sure he's going to end up with a lot of league MVPs. The point is, there's more to the equation than simply, hey, who has the most titles? That's true. We have another. What per- else you got two days? We have another person who disagrees with you. Disagree, but. Put up a couple more and we can talk. Common denominator, other than their own superlative gifts, was working with generational head coaches. Okay, so again, not disagreeing with me. Put up, even though he says he's disagreeing with me, (laughs) put up a couple more and we can talk. Look, I am pushing back on the argument, and none of the feedback you've given me so far is saying, no, 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 but a lot of people did. You have to win seven, he has to win eight. Let me add to be the GOAT. Let me ask you this. Who's the greatest of all time in basketball? 90% of people are going to say Michael Jordan, right? Mm-hmm. And the 90, there's a LeBron contingent out there right now who's trying to, you know, win that debate. It's not LeBron. And there's been an argument like, well, how many does LeBron have to win to get into that race? And LeBron's had a lot of, um, Jordan's 6-0. and What is LeBron? Is LeBron, he's lost... A lot. And by the way, losing in the championship, I think, actually shouldn't hurt your resume. You got mm-hmm. there. You know, that's that's part of it. He's been to, what, eight or nine? But this is my four. point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is my argument. You know what nobody says in basketball? Nobody says Bill Russell. Mm-hmm. Nobody says Bill Russell's the GOAT. Mm-hmm. And Bill Russell has 11 championships. So if Jordan's the GOAT, but he only won six, and Russell won 11... Why would Mahomes have to surpass Brady at seven or eight, tie or exceed, to establish himself as the GOAT? Why would that be necessary if it isn't necessary for Jordan? With the two different sports, though, in in, in football, it is so much more reliant on who that quarterback is if you're going to get that championship or not, where I think Russell had a couple other Hall of Famers with him. And when you have five people on the court, the amount of impact is different. Um, well, but you argued against yourself. I did. One basketball player. <laughs> I didn't go to one law school of five, <laughs> One of five is more impactful than one of 11, <laughs> even if it is the quarterback. Right. There's nobody more impactful on the field in football than the quarterback. But a quarterback, I had Joe Theismann say this to me this week. He said it's the most dependent position on the field. You're dependent upon everybody mm-hmm. else doing their job. I mean, Jordan could take over a game. One of five, you can leave a bigger imprint on a game. Uh, we do have one more that kind of goes to what you're saying. No, Super Bowls are the standard success. Brady is the GOAT until Mahomes gets seven. You know, I guess Steve Curtis believes that the GOAT in the NBA is Bill Russell. <laughs> I guess Again, so. I think Brady is the GOAT. Brady is the GOAT. I'm just saying, once the, my feeling is Mahomes is at three. When he gets to five, if he gets to five... It becomes a legitimate debate. If he's getting okay. in that six range plus, he can win the debate without having got to seven or eight. Right now, it's not a debate. 
We're talking about when it becomes a debate. I am the biggest Tom Brady fan out there there is. And I think we shouldn't take for granted that Mahomes could play till he's 40 or the necessary number of years to rack these up. That's what's amazing about Brady. And I agree with you. Three different Hall of Fame careers. All of them, by the way, a different way of playing quarterback. At times, the bus driver. At times, the the stud on the field. Um, but I'm just saying, get ready, because this debate's going to come, and it's going to have legitimacy if we stay on this path with Patrick Mahomes. All right, let's move on to this. Um, we had a big interview this week with Tony Robbins. It was awesome. Go check it out. Go subscribe at Will Kane Show on YouTube, or go listen to it on the podcast. It's about 40, 45, 50 minutes with Tony Robbins. Um, and we got some feedback on that as well, two days. What do people have to say about the conversation with Tony Robbins? We had All right, Nikki Tuba says, hey, yep. Will. Here we are, I got it. Nikki Tuba says, hey, Will, big fan of you in the show in Fox and Friends. You did a great interview. TR is a life-changing man, health and wealth and self. Biggest takeaway from TR, execution trumps knowledge. Just do it. If you ever get the opportunity to experience his in-person events, it's a must-do. That was from Instagram. I would, um, I would actually love to go to one of his in-person events. It sounds pretty awesome. Uh, there was so much he said in there that I thought about afterwards that I think is even worthy of their own dedicated conversations, dedicated segments here on The Will Cain Show. But I want to play with you one of the moments that really stuck out to me when he talks about what's re- what resonates, what is retained in your memory. Listen. You're ripping yourself off by having such a limited list of emotions, but people do it because of what they know. So I put people in environments mm where their energy is so high, their biochemistry changes, and now they start to feel differently, and they start to link it. It's like if I asked you where you were during 9-11, if you're not an American, most people can tell me where they were, who was with them, what they saw. If I asked you where you were on 8-11, you have no clue unless something special happened because information without emotion is not retained. So I produce high levels of emotion, and then we make the changes, and that's why when they did the studies, for example, at Stanford, they go, how is this lasting a year later with no interaction? Because it was anchored into their nervous system with so much emotion at the time. It's in their bodies, not just their heads. Information without emotion is not retained. He was talking about his in-person events there and putting people into emotionally charged situations so it's retained longer. I found that fascinating on a couple of fronts. Look, I have been someone probably throughout my life who's tried to downplay the value role of emotions and probably personally have tried to tune down my emotions so that I could focus more on rationality or logic. And I think in a way... What that's done for me negatively is it's it's left me actually out of touch on some situations in reality where I need to understand the role that emotion is playing in any given moment. And I've tried to, I'd say over the last five years, I've really tried to change that in being more attuned to mine and others' emotions. It's like before it was like, well, logic and rationality, that's what dictates right from wrong. I mean, you can't ignore one portion of reality, which is emotional. And Jonathan Haidt, um, uh, who's a, a thinker, a professor, he gave this really interesting analogy. It's called the elephant and the rider analogy. He said, uh, picture a man sitting on top of an elephant, uh, and he has reins to guide the elephant. The man represents rationality, logic. He's going to tell the elephant where to go. He's going to pull on the reins. The elephant represents emotion. He represents instinct. He represents, you know, gut. Um, and while the rational part of the equation, by the way, Daniel Kahneman, a behavioral uh, economist, has uh, talked about this as well. You have two systems in which decision-making is made, emotional and, and rational. You can use the rational to guide the elephant, but ultimately, if the two ever get into a disagreement, the elephant wins. Like, if the, the rider wants to go right, but the elephant says, I'm not going right, for whatever reason, the path, a threat, there's no pulling on the reins hard enough that the man is going to be able to change the course of the elephant. And that you have to be able to understand the use of both of these systems in the interplay between emotion and rationality in setting a course, a path, in setting decision-making. And in, in, and in memory, that's what's so fascinating. And I've known this intuitively, like, I don't, I don't come into my conversations with you or anybody else like, how can I manipulate this conversation into a way? But I do try to present information in a way that's compelling. And increasingly, I understand like you, 
And anger, and Matt, Ki- Matt Kibbe just talked about this earlier on our show. Like, anger is the easiest one. It's always easy. And it's all too often the tool, honestly, within conservatism, but also within any form of politics, the left, anger, resentment. It's the easiest emotion to anchor. But you know, this is why I would love to see a Tony Robbins event. That isn't going to be the emotional grounding. It's going to be something else, some positive vision, some positive feeling. And I think that we can all ground ourselves and our memories in something positive and emotional while marrying it to a rational outcome. And I, and I, I find that fascinating. It's something I, I want to work on just in terms of understanding and comporting with reality. All right, that's going to do it for me today here on The Will Cain Show. Tomorrow, as always, our Friday episode, sports exclusive. We're going to be joined by the guys from OutKick. We'll walk through Super Bowl week. What's it like to be on Radio Row? All that's coming up tomorrow right here on The Will Cain Show. I'll see you again next time. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcast and Amazon Prime members. You can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.